This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. Sarah, before we go any further, regrets. I've had a few. Some film takes that were a little underbaked, some film opinions that just didn't hold up. Will I be forgiven? I don't know. It depends on whether or not Paul Schrader is directing a movie about your life in which you're journaling your way through those film tapes. Man, I hope I'm not going to live through a Paul Schrader movie because otherwise that means I've got a really rough couple of weeks ahead of me. Or at the very least, you know, potentially a rough episode, but I think we'll get through it. Hopefully we will. It is going to be a doozy of an episode, listeners. We're going to be talking about Paul Schrader's third film in his unofficial Sin and Guilt trilogy, Master Gardener. And we're going to be pairing that with my watch list pick. That's Elaine May's saga of two bad men behaving badly as they traipse across Philadelphia. That's her 1976 film, Mikey and Nikki. Well, listeners, this episode will go down a lot more smoothly than whatever a Paul Schrader protagonist might be dealing with. So we hope you enjoy this episode of Seeing and Believing. The Nandina is a species of flowering plant native to Eastern Asia. The smell at certain times of the year gives you a real buzz. Like the buzz you get just before pulling the trigger. We're back on episode 383 of Seeing and Believing. And I do mean we're back, as in we are both in the recording studio together after a week off where, Sarah, you were gallivanting around the wilds of New York City. So yeah. welcome back to the co-host chair. I'm happy to be back in the Windy City, happy to uh, supply additional wind to the Windy City by talking on this podcast. Um, and really excited to talk about both of these movies. Yeah, it's going to be a good episode. I have a good feeling about it. We're going to be discussing Sarah's watch list pick, Mikey and Nikki for the second segment. But here in the first segment, we're going to be talking about the new film from a director whose last couple of films I've really appreciated a lot, Paul Schrader. Mm -hmm. Um, This new film is Master Gardener, and it's the third film in Schrader's unofficial trilogy about troubled men with guilt complexes and violent tendencies who only are just barely held in check by an almost ascetic discipline. Master Gardener centers on Narvel Roth, played by Joel Edgerton, a horticulturalist in charge of tending the vast gardens of a country estate and also a reformed neo-Nazi. His wealthy benefactress, Miss Haverhill, played by Sigourney Weaver, gives him a special project on the eve of a big garden charity event. Serve as a mentor to her grandniece, Maya, who just happens to be biracial. The tension between Roth's white supremacist past and his deepening relationship with Maya produces the torque that powers Schrader's film forward, even as it returns to many of Schrader's pet themes and aesthetics, which you could maybe boil down to austere discipline, introspective voiceover, and questions of how, or even whether, forgiveness can be granted in the face of seemingly unforgivable depravity. So, Sarah, like I mentioned at the top, this is an forms an unofficial trilogy with Schrader's First Reformed and The Card Counter. Both of those films I personally count as being among the best of their respective years. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm curious to get your thoughts on Schrader's uh, current output as as a whole and Master Gardener in specific. How well do you think that this new film works as a continuation of that unofficial trilogy. Yeah, it's interesting. So I am a lot cooler on Schrader's latest work than you are, um, which I feel like makes judging this trilogy a little bit difficult because I feel like I come down on it a little bit hard. Um, I did not like First Reformed. I know I'm one of like three people who did not care for First Reformed. (laughs) Um, Schrader feels so formal that it feels stiff to me. And I think that's the case for all three of these movies. And part of that is the asceticism of 
the characters. And I think part of that is the tight bounds with which he is trying to draw both their worlds and then also the ways that they try to impose some sort of self-discipline on themselves as a form of penitence. Um, Master Gardner feels a lot like more of the same to me, and I appreciate that Schrader is asking these big, tough questions. It feels like he's been ruminating on the question of forgiveness and grace for a very long time. It's something that is kind of a, a through line throughout all of his work, but here it's made so explicit that the outcome almost feels like a foregone conclusion. And I don't know if that's the reformed tradition that he's working from. I don't know if that's because he has not thought through the tension that he could draw through that, that tight stiff, not stiffness, like through the tightness that his characters are kind of putting themselves through. Like they're essentially putting themselves through the ringer. And that could be a source of strong tension. But for me, I think it feels like, it's such a pattern between all three of these movies at this point that there's almost no tension for me watching it because I kind of know where this story is going to go based on the previous two. We can talk about or at least like kind of dance around the ending and where he subverts some of those expectations. But here I saw a lot of commonalities between Master Gardener and the other two movies in the trilogy both in terms of the discipline and the filmmaking, but also just in repeated images. I think, I'm not sure if it shows up in First Reformed. It's been a few years since I've seen that movie. But um, in both The Card Counter and Master Gardener, you actually get the exact same top-down shot of our protagonists lying in bed. And they're mm -hmm. framed as though they're in a coffin. This is mm -hmm. early on in each of those movies. And it really speaks to the spiritual devastation that both of them are going through. And... I liked the shot when I saw Master Gardener and then I went back and I watched the card counter, which I appreciated a little bit more. And I thought, oh, shoot, Schrader's returning to the same well again here. And maybe it's not paying off quite the same dividends as it did the first time. So I'm curious to know where you landed on it, being someone who does appreciate the first two movies in this trilogy, at least. Yeah, uh, I mean, I I think you're... You're right. So you said something that struck me uh, at the beginning of your response when you talked about the Schrader's more recent films feeling stiff to you. Mm -hmm. And I disagree wholeheartedly with oh, you about okay. First Reformed and Card Counter because those films, they don't feel they don't feel stiff uh, or mannered to me at all. They feel mm. very um, rigorous and um, mm. Formal, formalized, but not they, – they don't feel artificial or stilted in mm. any way. I think Master Gardener, however, deserves the rap. <laughs> um, this, this film I think is a, a big disappointment for me as somebody who's really liked Schrader's explorations of, of sin and redemption and kind of what – <laughs> what it even means to be penitent hmm. for for one's past or for uh the sins of an entire society in the case of, of first reformed um i i don't feel like master gardener really i it, it has this first draft quality to me i guess that just feels hmm. really like schrader needed to let it marinate a little bit more before putting it out into the world and and kind of trying to make it a finished product because there's not very much about this film that I I think works. Part of it is kind of there's the schematic nature to the the relationship between Roth and Maya, mm. um, where it does kind of feel like you know where it's going to go, um, pretty much from the from the jump, which isn't necessarily you know something being predictable isn't necessarily a flaw, but I think because it's so obvious the path that we're going to take to get there, the absolution that Roth is trying to seek doesn't feel like it could possibly be as hard won as it is in for the characters in First Reformed and the card counter. The card counter hmm. ends with an act of, uh, <laughs> without spoiling too much, self-flagellation. Hmm. That is, mm -hmm. I thought was... was uh, 
spellbinding. I was I was not expecting it to go in that direction, and it really it was surprising and uh, a little bit uh, horrifying mm-hmm. uh, simultaneously. And I think that's kind of what Schrader's work at its best can do is kind of do both at the same time, where you you're kind of inspired by it and also taken aback by it at the same time. Mm. I think Master Gardener. Because it feels so artificial, it, it just it feels like he's painting by numbers at this point, hmm. which for a film that's about growing things and the joy in cultivation um, feels like an especially big miss. Yeah, I kind of want to get into the the gardening metaphor that Trader's working with here, because to me, it feels very surface level. And I'm sorry, but if you're going to use gardening as a metaphor for self-improvement and for attempting to cultivate grace, you got to dig a little bit deeper than this. No pun intended. Or <laughs> oh, pun was intended. very much intended. Um, and I'm not like a major gardener. I'm certainly not a master gardener like Roth is in this movie, but a lot of the metaphors that the characters use in dialogue feel very surface level and first drafty to me too. Like there's talk about having to deadhead roses to make sure that you get additional um, blooms on the bush later on in the season. And there's talk about um, the white supremacists that Roth used to be affiliated with referring to the work that they do is essentially pulling weeds. And those two turns of phrase are so cliche that they were kind of disappointing when they popped up in the screenplay, honestly, because I was expecting a little bit more from Schrader's work as a screenwriter to try to find something that's a little bit more surprising. And he doesn't really dig all that deep into the minutiae of Roth's life as a gardener. I think he's spending a little bit more time thinking about Roth thinking about acting out the actions of penitence. And one, I don't know that I fully bought the turn or understood that Roth had put in the work other than being told that he had been doing this work for a decade. There To me, it didn't feel as though there had been additional work in those intervening years between when he had been who he was and who he identifies as now. Whereas with First Reformed and The Card Counter, there's a lot of time and thought spent on the details of playing poker, playing blackjack, of running a parish that is dependent on the funds from another much more wealthy church at least in the in first reformed anyway and those two ways of moving in the world feel a lot more real and a lot more studied to me than the gardening metaphors did here in master gardener and i frankly found that kind of disappointing and maybe that's part of the reason why this movie felt so stiff to me is that a lot of the dialogue felt fairly perfunctory. Ooh, the the dialogue, man, it when when I say it has a first draft quality, I mean it, it literally feels like a rough draft. At one point, uh Sigourney Weaver's Ms. Haver Haverhill in a confrontation with Narvel uh says, you know, I I knew you had a green thumb. I didn't think you also had a green middle finger as well, which is just I don't know how I'll say it. it's a bad line. Mm-hmm. It's clumsy. It's heavy handed. It, it doesn't sound like something any human would say in a moment of anger mm-hmm. to another person. Like it, it just, it doesn't ring true. And I think that's the way a lot of the metaphorical work uh, is as well in this film is it, it doesn't ring true. It feels like Schrader is taking kind of a lot of his uh, pet preoccupations and sort of forcing them into a, a framework that revolves around gardening and cultivation as a metaphor, but doesn't take into account how that vocation is qualitatively different from uh, being a pastor or being somebody who uh, is very systematic about the way they they play cards. Mm-hmm. Um, the, all three of the characters in all three of those movies are, you know, they, there's a central device of them sitting down at a in a very Spartan room, uh, sitting down with a journal and pouring out their inner thoughts onto a piece of paper. And for 
much more cerebral characters like Ethan Hawke's in First Reformed or Oscar Isaac's in The Card Counter, mm -hmm. I feel like that makes sense both as a way to reveal them to the audience and also just as something that they would do. With Roth, um, gardening being such, you know, something that is situated in the physical world, not just the world of ideas, it feels like that's a less of a easy fit for, mm -hmm. for his character and for the movie as a whole, which made it feel, again, more like Schrader was kind of working on autopilot and hadn't quite worked out how to finesse it into this new framework. It, it just sort of is is there, like I said, in kind of a rough draft quality. It just needed, it needed to be developed more. It just doesn't feel developed. Yeah, which is kind of disappointing because I think um, some master gardeners do actually keep logbooks or diaries of when things have bloomed in the past and when they expect them to bloom alongside a farmer's almanac. Here it feels as though it's just spouting off different facts about different flowers that haven't quite even come in their season just yet. So it feels out of place both in terms of the dialogue that's being delivered and then also the thematic pieces that Schrader is trying to explore here, which is interesting because one of the opening lines in the movie, um, Roth says, gardening is a belief in the future mm -hmm. that change will come in its due time. And I wrote I, that quote as well. I, it struck me. It's one of the, the few times in the movie I was like, that's a really, that's really good. I liked that a lot. It's good. It doesn't quite have the same um, resonance as the line that it made me think of, which is a line from a Wendell Berry poem that says, um, invest in the millennium, plant sequoias. Um, and the poem goes on, and it's a very good poem. Um, but Berry is talking about the hope that you have to maintain even when everything else feels hopeless. And here, Roth is talking about a character development that he is undergoing and is almost fully through and will manage to make it all the way through by the time the movie has run out, even though he doesn't know it yet, but the plot dictates that it will, if that makes sense. Like there's a sense of Roth's character and the rest of the plot of the movie kind of by extension being a foregone conclusion and in some ways, I think that that does ring true with the way that Schrader seems to approach the world. I think a lot of his characters have a strong sense or streak of fatalism in them. And a lot of the stories that he tells, whether he's directing them or not, have to do with characters who are going down a path that they cannot arrest unless they turn from the path that they are on and break those habits. And because a lot of these characters are unwilling to accept the grace that is extended to them. They're not able to do that. I'm thinking of Jake LaMotta and Raging Bull specifically. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's, it, these those other characters feel just so much more strongly sketched out, including Ethan Hawke and Oscar Isaac and First Reformed and The Card Counter respectively. But here... Roth just feels like such a thin sketch that I don't have very much to hang on from him other than I know what he's done in the past. And I know that he's maybe trying to be better, although there isn't really much evidence of that either. He's just going through the day to day. And part of me wonders what that character would be like were he not in his specific situation and had he not been given this specific job. I think that problem of characters feeling sketchy extends not just to Roth, but also to the other characters as well. And most mm -hmm. problematically with uh, Maya, the yes. character of Maya played mm -hmm. by Quintessa Swindell, who has, has kind of an unplayable role. Swindell is kind of tasked with playing the role of a young woman who is half Roth's age, who becomes entangled in a, in a romance with him despite the fact that he uh, not only used to be a neo-Nazi, but bears the tattoos of that ideology on his body. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know if, if like I can imagine theoretically a movie taking that provocative idea and making it work somehow, but it doesn't work here. And part of the problem is, Maya is not really her her character isn't fleshed out in any way that feels meaningful. Her reasons for being drawn to Narvel don't feel convincing mm -hmm. or I mean, 
I guess I don't even know what her reasons might <laughs> might have been. She just is. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels, I mean, for for subject matter that explosive, it doesn't feel like Schrader took the, the care with it that was needed to make it feel, number one, plausible, and number two, um, responsible for telling a story in which a, a white character is absolved of his racist past simply by being irresistible to a much younger black woman. Yeah. I, yeah, I really don't like, I also just don't like the way that Schrader writes women in general, which was part of the reason why I had such friction with First Reformed Hmm. in the first place. I had a really big problem with the way that Amanda Seyfried's character was dealt with. And um, I can't remember the other character's name within First Reformed, but the one who Ethan Hawke's character had been sort of romantically entangled with in the past. Those two, I think... um, are good examples of ways where Schrader uses women as symbols without managing to turn them into believable people as well. And Maya is another symptom of that problem and probably one of the more egregious versions of that that I've seen recently, Um, which is really, it's really disappointing. And it's something that I don't know how you could fix that or change that beyond giving her a character that is an actual believable human who has agency and who also is able to speak for herself. This character does not make any decisions for herself at all, I think, much in the screenplay until very close to the very end. Um, And most of her decisions are decisions not to act, with one crucial exception. Um, A lot of her dialogue is covered over by voiceover from Narvel Roth. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a moment where the two of them are walking through the garden and it's supposed to be the start of their attraction to each other. You can see rose petals scattered, scattered on the ground and they're talking with each other and they're kind of not talking about much of consequence. And then the voiceover kicks in as she's talking and it's Roth saying, I haven't really thought about women much except as women other than Sigourney Weaver or Sigourney Weaver's character and Maya herself. And that's so disappointing because you spend so much time in Roth's head that you can't really get a sense for who any of these other characters are other than how Roth sees them. And Roth barely even sees anybody else as being full people either. He just sees them as, you know, people that he can give directions to when they're working in the garden or as objects of romantic interest. And I find that deeply disappointing. It's, I mean, it just, it it feels just underwritten. It it seems like a scripting problem. There's, there's a scene, um, there's, there's all sequence, I guess, where, we see Maya who has discovered the truth about Roth's past and she's trying to kind of square that circle. The, this person that she she genuinely you know ha- has liked up to that point mm-hmm. versus the person she now knows him to have been. And he tells her uh, he tells her, I'm not that person anymore. But for her, she ha- she doesn't necessarily know it. She has to decide whether she's going to believe that he's number one, not delusional when he says that. Mm-hmm. And number two uh, is somebody that can be whom she can trust anymore now that she knows uh, of his racist past. And uh, there's a shot that Schrader gives us of her sitting alone in a, in a hotel room. And it's a wonderful shot, visually speaking. It, she's uh, alone in, in a hotel room. It's nighttime. And a car that is either passing by on the, on the road or maybe pulling into a parking spot, the headlights kind of shine in through the blinds and, mm-hmm. and it kind of creates this cascade of light down her face. And it's very clear that Schrader is visually telling us that she's experiencing some sort of epiphany or change of heart. And from there she goes and she reconciles with with Roth in a, in a sex scene that is a, a little... <laughs> uncomfortable for a lot of reasons partly because it's so stilted <laughs> again mm-hmm. it, it feels just not at all like uh, a human interaction uh and feels much more like schrader just forcing this black character to do what he wants her to do mm-hmm. um but that that's that scene it seems like visually schrader is telling us something but we never get to s- we don't get anything else other than that visual telling us that it has happened but we don't know how she finds her way to that epiphany 
or or how difficult it was for her. It's literally just a few seconds shot sandwiched in between shots of Narvel kind of uh, wrestling with his own feelings and doubts and fears. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is, is a problem that um, could possibly have been worked out with a more, a more deeply written character, but the characters were presented just isn't cutting it. Yeah, and it really is a shame about the filmmaking too, because the framing is very good. Like there are multiple striking shots here, but I think that Schrader's thinking more about the surface level substance and then the broad themes that he's trying to engage with more so than the depths of those characters' hearts. Part of me wonders if it comes back to this idea of like transcendental style in film that he's been engaging with a lot, especially in First Reformed. Um, the other two movies in this trilogy don't really fall underneath that umbrella quite so tightly. Um, and he's written about transcendental style in film quite a bit. He actually has a whole book about it. And he talks about how this specific style is so still and so focused on the ordinary and the everyday and the the moments in between that you're kind of forced to lean forward towards the screen in order to be able to engage with it. So you're both reminded of the fact that you are watching a movie and you are also made desirous of entering the world of that movie at the same time. And then you kind of transcend what's going on on the screen and the sum of its parts is made or the the whole is made greater than the sum of its parts, essentially. That's me putting it into a very, very tight little nutshell, and it's a little bit more complicated than that. But I think that part of my issue with this trilogy as a whole is there is that focus on attempting to transcend without having the circumstances that the characters are transcending always necessarily landing and i know you can take issue with that because i know you like first reformed a lot more than i do but i i genuinely had a hard time with that movie because it felt as though the whole film was holding me purposefully at arm's length which is what transcendental style and film is supposed to do but i was never fully able to break through and enter into that world of the film in a believable way it still feels very maybe not stilted, but still very stiff to me. And I just can't fully break through that membrane. Um, The card counter, I think I liked to a slightly more extent than that. Um, But this one doesn't even manage to fully get around, I don't know, the, the basically perfect plotting structure of First Reformed. Like it doesn't quite reach those heights. Like I don't like First Reformed, but I can recognize that it is still a very good and well-made movie. And Master Gardener doesn't quite reach that point either. Yeah, it's it's a a big disappointment. I, I think it just comes come. I feel like we're just coming back to the the same thing over and over. Where it 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 seems like it just it needed to bake a little bit more if mm-hmm. if it were to be successful at all. Um, and I just don't think it got all the way there, which is so sad because and I wonder if it might come back to something that you mentioned earlier where you were kind of hoping for something a little bit more tactile from a story that is about gardening Mm -hmm. because there are moments where I think Schrader does provide us that and I think that a more carefully considered version of this film would have been able to draw those moments out more and kind of make them feel like more of a uh, focus of a unified whole rather than just isolated moments. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where uh, it's Maya's first day under uh, Narvel's tutelage, and he's kind of telling them all about loam. And he tells them to take a handful of this dirt and really just press it up against their face and and inhale deeply, you know, almost as if it's it's life itself that they're trying to take. And uh, Schrader shoots Maya as. Like she's obviously a little bit more tentative about because it's her first day on the job, but the the way that she holds the loam up to her face almost tenderly in this it's a wonderful bit of her physical performance from Swindell. Um, she holds it up to her face tentatively, but also gently, and she just kind of there's a there's a deep kind of sense of, of like vulnerability almost in mm-hmm. that moment that I really liked. And then later on, when when we get kind of the a version of the magical mystery tour from from first reformed, except uh, it's flower focused in this one, 
I also thought was just a really wonderful bit of color in an otherwise very austere film. Mm-hmm. Those moments, like I think Schrader still has it, but he didn't let this film, he, he didn't work out how to make this film work the work to its best advantage. It's kind of just they're isolated bits instead of something much more overall well constructed. Yeah, completely agree with you. Well, listeners, that is our review of Master Gardener. I know that there are other Schrader fans out there among our listener base, so I'm very interested to know your thoughts and your reactions to this new film from him. You can, of course, email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. You can tweet us at SeaBelievePod or hit us up on Letterboxd on, at SeaBelievePod. Um, and just to let us know what you what you think of this film, maybe what you thought of Schrader's previous two films. We crave your thoughts on all of those things. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be jumping into our watch list segment here in a bit with Mikey and Nikki. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting. A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption. Written by Dwayne, Dog the Bounty Hunter, Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Welcome to the conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from listeners and everyone else out there who help us keep the conversation about movies going. And it's appropriate that this is called The Conversation, Sarah, because Mm -hmm. you recently had a very big conversation in New York City last week with Matt Zoller Seitz. Yes. Um, I'm very curious to to know how that went. You were there to uh, screen and then talk about aliens, right? Yep. We were there for a screening of aliens, which I think was originally supposed to be a Mother's Day screening. Um, it was right around <laughs> that weekend. Um, good movie for Mother's Day, honestly. It's it's excellent. Um, had a good Q&A and conversation immediately after that. Matt recorded it, so we might be able to get a version of that floating around the internet. And once that does happen, I will make sure to link to it in the show notes once we know that that exists and and has been put up. Um, And we also did a book signing for my book, Becoming Alien, afterwards as well, which was very exciting. So, Yeah, that sounds great. And I'm very... Uh, keen to watch that recording of that conversation. It it sh- it sounds like a good one, and I'm looking forward to experience it weeks after the fact, even if uh, I couldn't be there in person. So. Yeah, yeah, I will definitely make sure that you can get your hands on that when it is available. I also got to listen to a conversation that you had, Kevin. Uh-huh. Uh, I was in the unusual position of being once again just a listener for Seeing and Believing last week. So you're joining the conversation not as a co-host this week, but a- also as a as a listener as well. Yeah, I am here to chime in with all of my opinions about Fast X, which I still have not seen, and with all of my opinions about Out of the Past, which I have seen. Great movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, we were talking before the we started recording this episode, and you mentioned that you'd seen Out of the Past and how it would have been a perfect pairing with Master Gardener. Mm-hmm. And now I'm a little bit sad that I that I blew <laughs> I blew things and and spent it on Fast Ten instead of. Uh, instead of you know leaving it up for for you to take from Master Gardener, but that's life, I guess. <laughs> I mean, Fast X plus Out of the Past is a galaxy-brained pairing, which made me very happy personally. So, yeah. well, in another universe, perhaps that would have been uh, what you got. But I still enjoyed my conversation with Chris Williams last mm-hmm. week quite a bit, and was. Glad to be able to share that uh, with him for for the first time. So, uh, yeah, listeners, if you have any thoughts on either of those films, uh, the mailbag is still open. We love to read those thoughts out here in the conversation segment. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
And now we come to the watch list segment. This is, of course, the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host hasn't seen. Mm -hmm. We both watch it and then talk about it. And Sarah, you are uh, fresh back in the co-host seat and you had the pick this week for the watch list segment. And you picked Elaine May's 1976 film, Mikey and Nikki. Now, this film takes place over the course of a single night. As John Cassavetti's Nicky, having run afoul of the mob, does his best to avoid getting whacked with the help of his childhood friend Mikey, played by the great Peter Falk. Unbeknownst to Nicky, though, Mikey is in cahoots with the assassin, though just how much he's willing to help assist in the death of his friend remains an open question for most of the film. And that was kind of the what was at least drawing me through through the majority of the film is kind of wondering just how far that was going to go. Mm-hmm. But I'm interested in your thoughts, Sarah, since this was your pick um what the galaxy brain connection is with master gardener but also uh what was it that drew you to this film and, and keeps drawing you back to it yeah so galaxy brain take is um that this is a movie about a man's past sort of catching up with him so john cassavetti's nikki um had been a bookie for the mob and he did somebody dirty and then they're coming after him so consequences for your actions kind of feels a little bit shradery although elaine may is tonally and artistically probably about 180 degrees away from how schrader approaches his she's material. got a sense of humor for one thing yeah she definitely does <laughs> um so kind of a bad men behaving badly and also their pasts catching up with them. I think for um, Schrader's most recent trilogy, I keep coming back to the sense of fatalism that all of these characters are kind of muddling through. And structurally, Mikey and Nikki is a movie that tells you exactly what's going to happen at the end. You just don't know how they're going to get there. But May tells you immediately, like, somebody is going to die and he knows it and he's terrified of it and he still can't fully get away from that fate. This is not a movie that I necessarily always enjoy watching, at least not every single part of it, but it's a movie that sticks in my craw and I like the way that it sticks in my craw specifically because of the way that May lets her players just kind of go out and play and behave strangely and give interesting line deliveries and be really, really funny. Um, And a lot of the editing here is very funny, too. There are a lot of very good uh, jokes where someone says, um, like, don't do this thing. It's not good. And then the camera immediately cuts to them doing that thing. And it's done with just such perfect timing that, I don't know, the joke follows through, even though May isn't necessarily commenting on it. She's just letting it play through. Um, this was your first Elaine May movie, right? It was. I've been meaning to catch up with May, especially since, you know, in latter years, especially, she's get, she's gotten such a critical reappraisal for a lot of her films. And so mm-hmm. it's been overdue that I've been for me to watch any of her films. So, yeah, I was glad to catch up with this one. Yeah, this one was also my first Elaine May. I've seen A New Leaf as well, which is also very good. I haven't seen her other two. Um, curious to know if this movie stuck in your craw or if you liked it or how, how yeah. it came across. Yeah, I, I, I would say I liked it. I don't know that I, I loved it. And a lot of that might uh, come down to, I just think the it's it's a very rough around the edges films v- visually. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I can't help but wondering if a, a more, I don't know, I don't want to say a polished style because I think a lot of the appeal of this film is how that rough around the edges feel. Um, the improvisational feel really does kind of, uh, it gives it an energy that if that, that a more polished version wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know that you can necessarily separate the two, but I did really like the sensibility that flows throughout it. And especially in the, in the early going, it's really funny. And, uh, I mean, that's not a surprise, you know, May was uh, a gifted comedian, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, got her start originally, like, you know, doing improv comedy, uh, and then later sketch comedy with Mike Nichols. So, I mean, like she's, Mm -hmm. she knows her way around a joke and a lot of the comic business in this film really landed for me. And I found it to be a really interesting counterpoint with the, darker more fatalistic aspects of the film Mm -hmm. like i I feel like it's not often that you see a movie that is about a character living under the 
cloud, you know, the sword of Damocles that's constantly hanging over his head for the entire film and still like find space for him to just be kind of a yutz and just like, <laughs> like the, the, the opening sequence where uh, Fox Mikey, uh, you know, comes to visit Nikki, who's hiding out in a seedy hotel room and, you know, basically has to force him to drink milk and take antacids because of his ulcer mm-hmm. is is really just the the performance from Cassavetes, who, you know, is just all bug eyed anxiety and Falk, who's just kind of patiently trying to get him to just take a dang pill is a, a lot of fun. And I enjoyed that quite a bit and made the, I don't know, the film just feels unpredictable, which I appreciated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And Cassavetes in particular is just such a live wire of a performer. Um, and the way that he bounces off Peter Falk, who's sort of playing the straight man, but not really, not fully, because this is a guy who is also completely on the edge as well. He's just a little bit better at hiding it than Nikki is. Um, I just, I love that energy and I love the way that the two of them play off each other, especially because Falk is playing this voice of reason as he's slipping Nikki these antacid pills. But you know, 30 seconds ago, he was this close to throttling the guy at the bar downstairs because he wouldn't sell him half and half. Like, it's a ridiculous situation. And I think that that really speaks to the strength of May as a comedian and specifically as that sketch comedian because she's able to come up with concepts that are just this side of being just a little bit outlandish but not unbelievable. Like you believe that these characters are probably out there somewhere wandering the streets of Philly. This is also a very Philadelphia movie as well. Um, And that heightened sensibility and the way that the two of them just sort of bounce off each other and clearly hate each other and also love each other deeply. um, I just, I love the tension between that. And I love the tension between those two characters and the way that they're both fully fleshed out and fully realized. And yeah, it's, it's an unruly movie, especially with the camera work and some of the sound work. It feels a little bit, like like you said, it feels unpolished. But I think that that kind of helps with the rough and tumble sensibility of both of these characters as they're bouncing around the streets of Philly, trying to stay one step ahead of an assassin who's not particularly great at his job either. <laughs> so so Ned Beatty plays that assassin. And it's I, – I really – I just – the one of my favorite bits of comedy from this film is how it is a gangster movie, mm-hmm. but it's a gangster movie where everybody's just just sort of like this is annoying. Why are we? Why do we have to go through this? <laughs> like Ned Betty, at one point he's driving around with Peter Falk in the car, and uh, you know they're 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 looking for Nikki. They're trying to hunt him down. They're just like it's you know two a.m. I just want to I just want to go to bed, man. Mm-hmm. Like and. and as they're driving around and and they're they're scouring the streets for him, uh, the the hitman is just grousing about how I just couldn't find parking anywhere. I had to park in a no parking zone for an hour waiting for you guys. He's just like he's complaining about parking as they're driving around trying to whack a guy. And I thought that was very funny and it, funny in in a particular kind of dark humored way that I just I, I don't know. I it was a sensibility that I I really enjoyed. And even though the cinematography is like, there are some of these nighttime scenes that are so dark, it's difficult even to really see the details of the performances, mm-hmm. which is disappointing um, because Falk and Cassavetes are so interesting to watch. That said, the the fact that there's just so much inky blackness on screen kind of, it does serve as this this visual little touch reminding us that, you know, this is this is a bad this is a bad time for for these guys. It is, it's a dark night of the soul for Nikki, and uh, Mikey's not feeling so so hot either. Yeah. And I I really uh, appreciated um, how that even if it wasn't an intentional visual choice, like in terms of something that was cultivated intentionally by may i really liked how it ended up working out the finished product yeah and one of the things that i love about may just as a filmmaker and as a comedian is she's got everybody on the hook and she's not letting anybody off the hook not her main players not any of the side characters especially not her audience but she's gonna make you laugh while you're Mm. wriggling there and she's so good at 
pulling out those conflicting emotions and then still managing to make you laugh even as you're very deeply uncomfortable about some of the situations that are going on on the screen. Um, I just, I don't know, I, I can't help but admire it. And I appreciate that those characters are just kind of there and stuck and also deeply uncomfortable. And so they're just going to keep trying to get out of that situation or they're going to keep trying to, um, I don't know, they're they're looking for an escape and she's not going to give them any of that escape and they're going to reveal so much more of themselves because they're stuck in the position that they are. I keep thinking about the cemetery scene, which is very dark, probably a bit of a lighting issue. Um, but Mikey and Nikki have been traipsing around Philly for a while. It's one in the morning and they're passing by the cemetery where Nikki's mother has been buried. And on a whim, Nikki says, we're not going to our ultimate destination. We are going to get off this bus right now and we are going to go visit my mother because my mother is buried here. And the way that they get off the bus is also very funny because it's about a five minute like extended sequence where they're giving the bus driver a very hard time. And then once they're in the cemetery, Mikey doesn't want to be there because he's supposed to deliver Nikki to a completely different location and he has no way to let the hitman know where they are. Nikki is going through every single emotion in the world as he's searching for his mother. And Nikki is shouting, hey, Ma, where are you? While Mikey is apologizing to every single gravestone that they pass by. That tells you so much about both of their characters. And they're just saying the same words over and over again. And, and Mikey also, like he he's said just before that moment that, you know, he doesn't believe, you know, he's he's not religious. He doesn't believe in life after death. He doesn't believe there's there's anybody like the the people buried there are, are just remains they're not like people and yet he's the one who's sort of like you you got to show some respect and apologizing to people for stepping on their graves and it it's it's never commented on it's just it's funny that he delivers this whole skeptics speech and then he's the one who's a little bit spooked by being irreverent in a graveyard at night. He explicitly says that he leaves that Michigas for the for the Catholics, which I appreciate. Like, it's just a very, very good line. And then he also says the Kaddish next to <laughs> Nikki's mother's grave. And Nikki, meanwhile, is carrying on and talking to his deceased mother. And Mikey keeps getting irritated with him because he keeps forgetting the next line in the Kaddish. It's just the way that the two of them bounce off each other and play off each other and their anxieties kind of spiral out of control, even as they're both trying to maintain some sort of a grip is just, it's stunning. Yeah. Something you, you saw, you said earlier, uh, piqued my interest. And I want to hear you talk about more. You talked about how the, the film, you know, doesn't let its characters off the hook and also doesn't let its audience off the hook. And I'm very interested mm -hmm. to hear you unpack that a little bit more. I mean, these are characters that I have a very difficult time with because they are so unruly, and I like that May makes me sit with them and watch them in their foibles and watch them scuffle in the street literally like little boys. And she makes me laugh at them, and then she makes me realize, like, oh, I'm laughing partly because I feel kind of superior to both of these people because at least I have all of my stuff together even though these two don't. And then she keeps humanizing them, even when they're being absolutely terrible. And then she also keeps humanizing everybody else that they come into contact with, too. And I think a lot of that comes from kind of that sketch comedy sensibility where she's building out entire worlds and entire situations. And she's giving those players the ability to breathe and to deliver a funny line and then to just sit on that and let that be the next beat rather than cutting away to the next joke. The jokes are fairly rapid fire, but there's still enough room for you to kind of marinate the, in them a little bit. And sometimes they don't always go over completely well. Sometimes they are deeply uncomfortable. Um, but because May is willing to give a human face to these characters and make me think about them as not just, you know, a pair of schmucks running around Philly late at night. Um, it makes me a little, a little bit more inclined to be charitable towards both of them in the end, um, which in turn makes me feel deeply uncomfortable and conflicted about the very ending of this movie too. And I just, I like that. And I like being able to sit and think about it. Like it's, Sometimes a painful movie to watch, but also a very fun movie to watch, largely because it's so funny 
And then I keep thinking about it after the fact, just because it's, I don't know, it feels very singular to me. That's a, that's a good answer. I do. So one, one thing I, I had, I had trouble with because Nikki, I really, I did oh, not awful. like Nikki. He's an awful person yeah. and he's, uh, Cassavetes plays him as just this, this bundle of nervous energy. So he's not just, you know, somebody who, who does bad things, but also somebody who's just deeply annoying. Yes. And, um, and it bothered me because I was just like, I just, this guy, like, I, I want to stop being around him. I want him, I, I, I was kind of like, I kind of want him to get whacked. Yeah. And then that final scene happens where he's, you know, he's standing outside Mikey's front door and just like pounding on it, screaming at him, like begging him to let him in, mm-hmm. the, this childhood friend, let him in because the hitman is just uh, slowly approaching in his car and his death is nigh. Mm-hmm. And Mikey is pushing furniture against the door and refusing to let him in. And uh, in that moment, you like it's it's a harrowing scene, and it's also one that you do in, in that moment. I did for a character that I really disliked up to that point. I I, I said I felt suddenly deeply sad for him, and I pitied him so much. And I thought that was kind of a that's a place that we couldn't have gotten to without May specifically writing the character that way and directing Cassavetes to play him in a certain way. Um, like that, that moment wouldn't have the, the little, uh, the, the bit of energy that it has if any of those elements were different, which I thought was, was interesting. Like it, it's, it's a very interesting way that may finds her way to that. And it, it makes me wonder if that's, a little bit of her improv background showing itself. So sorry, improv nerd alert. One thing that <laughs> happens uh, in when, when you're like learning how to do good improv is, is finding the game in a scene, like hmm. finding like the, the little quirk or the little bit of that reality on stage that is slightly exaggerated and leaning into it as much as you can. So if there's a character who has like something that they really like to do or really don't like to do, that's the game of the scene and you just play with it and heighten it and heighten it and heighten it and make them make that character do or don't do that thing as much as as you can or mm. make that situation come up as often as you can make it come up and a lot of the comedy in this film kind of works along the same lines where you know Nikki is paranoid about getting whacked so he's going to do the opposite of everything that uh Mikey tells him to do mm-hmm. even you know when when it's little things like they're going going down to the lobby of the hotel and Mikey says I think we should take the elevator and so Nikki says no we're taking the stairs yes <laughs> or, and and that's really funny but also it extends to maybe the drama as well where um Nikki is a deeply annoying person um and the movie makes that the game and leans into it so hard that by the end it loops back around and it's because he's annoying that you that you're so invested in his ultimate fate, which is very interesting. <laughs> yeah. It feels like a magic trick to me because yeah, he manages to be so annoying that I'm like, I want him to continue going and being annoying somewhere else. And yet he's not going to do that because he's not going to go anywhere. He's just kind of stuck there on that doorstep forever. Um, yeah. I love the way that Cassavetes plays him too. Like, I think I mentioned at the top that he's just kind of a live wire, but he's these, this bundle of like ticks and neuroses and he's constantly on the move um, except when Mikey isn't around. So I think I mentioned that there's a couple of jokes where somebody says like, don't do something or like, if you do this, there will be this consequence. And then that consequence happens like exactly the way that um, it was described. So when Mikey is picked up by the um, by the hitman, he says, like, we're not going to go back to the same street corner where I last saw Nikki because he there's no way that he's going to be there. Like, we're going to have to go drive around a couple of different blocks in order to be able to find him. Immediate smash cut to Nikki standing at the exact same street corner where they got into a shuffle. You can tell that it's the exact same street corner because there's some money that somebody dropped right there. And he's just standing still with his jacket over his arm. And he is waiting for Mikey to come back to him. And then he just sort of wanders off once he loses interest in that moment. And it's just, it's such a perfect visual joke, especially because it's maybe like 
10 seconds, if that at all. And then it just moves right on to the very next thing. It's perfect. Yeah. And that that whole hunt for Nikki is, is funny because there's there's an entire sequence where Mikey says, that's him. That's him. Let's get him. And so they, you know, they they burn rubber. They're they're careening around corners. They're chasing this guy. It's a pretty long chase sequence. They chase him down. Finally, you know, the 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 guy stumbles and falls. They they pull back. They get out of the car. They stand over him. And then, and then Mikey says, "That's not him." Yeah. <laughs> and then it's on to the next scene. And it's just it's it's wonderful because May really draws out that entire sequence. So you're like, "Oh, this is the big climax." And then no, <laughs> Mikey just mis, you know, mistook a random pedestrian for their target, and that's just. It's wonderful. It's delightful. Yeah. Yeah. She kind of deflates both the audience and the characters at the exact same time. And then um, a lot of just sort of disconnected sequences with Nikki take place like immediately after that as well. So there are other situations that he finds himself in that are completely unrelated to anything else that's going on in the plot. But again, it's May just kind of building out that world in a believable way with the ability to give somebody else a chance to play in it for a little while as well, too. Yeah, which isn't to say that she doesn't... I don't know. I I was really surprised by the dramatic depth mm-hmm. that shows up in the film's like last 20 minutes. So kind of the thing that causes the final break between Mikey and Nikki is uh, Nikki's... The entire film has been wearing... A watch in the very first scene, Mikey gives Nikki the watch and says, "Like, okay, or very, I guess it's not the very first scene; it's the very beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. They trade clothes, and one of the things that Mikey gives Nikki is is a watch. And he doesn't act like it's any big deal; he just gives it to him. Then at the end of the film, uh, we find out that that watch was his prized possession from his father. It's the only thing he has left of his father, and Nikki's been wearing the the entire film and then he just in for no good reason he just pulls off his wrist and throws it in the streets and just utterly pulverizes it mm-hmm. and Falk's performance of of just how low-key heartbroken he is to have lost that that memento is really touching and it i mean it's something that's been set up uh, from the very beginning of the film and has never come up again until that moment. And then you realize it's been under your nose the entire time and it recontextualizes that moment when Mikey does allow Nikki to have this watch. Like that wasn't something that uh, you would have known until unless you stuck it out to the end. And then the performance that Falk gives in telling the story of that watch is just, it's a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. May does a lot of really good recontextualization between the beginning of the movie and the very end of the movie. And it's something that took me a little while to pick up on. Um, Knowing the end of the movie, when I came in on this rewatch, like I had a really good sense of what was going to happen and what was coming. There's a lot of ironic repetition from the very opening scene and the very closing scene, but you wouldn't know it based on the way that it's framed. So at the very end of the movie, Nikki is pounding on Mikey's front door and he's begging to be let in because otherwise he's going to die. And at the very beginning of the movie, Mikey has been summoned to Nikki's hotel room and he is pounding on that hotel room door because Nikki won't let him in because Nikki thinks that he's going to die. And it's just such a beautiful reversal of positions and a beautifully ironic reversal. And it's done in such a way where if you're not actively thinking about it, it may not be something that necessarily comes up, but then you see both of those scenes kind of side by side recontextualized. And these two characters have been doing this to each other the entire time. It's just that she makes it explicit at the very beginning and the very end. One is in danger and desperation and despair, And he won't let the other one in. There's some sort of a shield up 
in Nikki's case, it's probably like his shield and his armor is how deeply annoying he is. Um, and he's not going to let Mikey in. He's not going to show any of that vulnerability. And the moment that he does show that vulnerability, I think, is where May really twists the knife and makes you realize, oh, no, this guy is actually human, too. And he's terrible and I hate him, but I also don't want him to die. And I just I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a great moment for sure. And yeah, I don't know, like hearing, hearing you talk about it, like I, I, I even though. I didn't love this film as much as I've loved some of, of your other watch list picks. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it is sticking in my craw a little bit. It might grow on you. This is a movie that I did not like the first time I saw it. And I keep coming back to it anyway. And it's grown on me quite a bit too. Yeah. Well, that, that might be the, the magic of, of Elaine May. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll have to see if her other films have that as well. Excellent. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Listeners, that is our review of Mikey and Nikki. If you've had a chance to see it, uh, let us know your thoughts. Uh, email, Twitter, letterbox, whichever way you want to do it. It's good to good for us. If you want to catch up with it and haven't had a chance yet, it still is streaming on HBO Max, which I guess is technically called Max now. Officially, to, like, as of today when we're recording. emails they've sent me about their rebranding. So anyway, you can find it on there. Uh, it's on the Criterion Collection as well. So something worth checking out for sure. Next week, we are going to be talking about... Spider-Man into this or Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. I'm so excited for this. Movie. I'm looking forward to that one as well. We both really like the first Spider-Verse film. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to seeing if the sequel has some of that same magic. And I'm going to pair it with what for me is, I don't know if it's the very best action movie of the 80s, but it's probably my top three. Ooh. And that would be Paul Verhoeven's 1987 film. Robocop. Oh my gosh. I really want to know the galaxy brained connection between these two movies. And I kind of want you to tell me here and now. And I also kind of want you to just not tell me until next week's episode. Mm, Good things come to those who wait. So (laughs) uh, listeners, both you and Sarah will find that out and uh, some other things as well when we talk about Robocop next week. But that'll do it for this week, I guess. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larsen. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.